The moral of every Monsters Under the Bed story is the same. The monster is all in your head. This sounds very simple, but it's easy to forget what this means and what it doesn't mean and why it's important. It doesn't mean that there's no such thing as monsters, as best demonstrated in the 1986 science fiction adventure film Aliens, also released under the title The Greatest Story Ever Told. In the film, Sigourney Weaver's Ripley, seen uniquely as an adult authority figure by the orphaned Newt, is asked to explain the presence of the teeming alien xenomorphs that have killed all the other space colonists. They are clearly monsters, so why do they tell children there's no such thing, Newt asks. Ripley's answer is simple. Usually it's true. Usually. But this isn't just a complicated metaphor for how society keeps us safe from lions and tigers and bears. Unlike the alien xenomorphs in the film, most of the monsters in real life aren't something you can look at. Absolving each of us of any deliberate malice, they tower above our reach in unassailable institutional armor and behind hydra-like networks for diffusing responsibility. They have boring, mundane names like prejudice and poverty and decline and death. They teach us that knowledge is not power, that our folly lies with forgetting that our words place them only within our understanding, not our control. We worry a lot about these, and we are right to, even though we can't always fight them. These aren't just monsters. These are species of monsters under the bed. I'm sure of it. You're listening to the Second Page Storytelling Show on WOBC 91.5 FM, Overland College and Community Radio. I'm your host, Harris Laparoff. We're doing a double episode this week. The first part of the hour, the part you're listening to right now, will bring you two stories about monsters under the bed. In the second part of the hour, we'll bring you four stories of coming home. You're listening to a story by Mike Rauscher. But how? And why? This is a very simple story about how I became a monster under the bed, and learned how, and why. Because there are also lesser monsters we can and do fight with. They, like us, spend much of their time in a raster-drawn, Ajax-driven, table-breaking world of contrast and color and neon, of soaring day-glow infographics with ambiguous provenience, of abyssal comment threads that probe deep truths about the human condition, uh, just not the truths they think they're arguing about. They live on the electric internet, the natural medium for a world awakened to lowered expectations. The information superhighway, the series of tubes, the high-strung, over-mythologized world of hipsters, haters, and trolls. And as Nietzsche says, he who fights with monsters becomes a monster, and so I'm a monster, and more specifically, I'm a hater. And my operative theory of the internet reflects this, and strongly channels the bumper-sticker sloganeering of a certain liberal arts college that is near and dear to all our listeners, because I'm not just a hater. I believe that one hater can change the world. It took me a while to get here. My awakening to this kind of monumental pettiness came to a head in the fall of 2011, on the 10th anniversary of the one holiday celebrated by every lost soul beset with a TCP-IP affliction. Find the most offensive picture on 4chan day. <laughs> 
There is no romance to this holiday, other than as a journey of self-discovery where you can find out just how few things trigger your disgust reaction. Like any good horrible neck beard, very few things trigger mine. And like any good horrible neck beard, I spent the evening of this day drinking can after can of soda, refreshing page after page of image board, and beckoning nightmare vision after nightmare vision of the World Trade Center towers being toppled by giant Hulk Hogan's and Death Stars and Tetris blocks. I finished my fourth can of soda and placed it absentmindedly next to the adjacent stack of its predecessors. And the usual conspiratorial forum's ephemera followed like a mighty river. Blink and you'll miss it. Speak and your words will be carried away into the ceaseless slurred pecks of data center hard drive seeks lost in a 60 hertz menagerie. A mighty river indeed. You never step in the same accusations that the Federal Reserve is a Zionist lizard man plot to whatever whatever twice. Relax, I tell myself. These words do not even flow from people. These images simply coalesce out of the zeitgeist, fully formed like flies from rotting medieval meat. Look, but don't touch. Look, but don't touch. That is the most time-honored tradition of find the most offensive picture on 4chan day. That nothing that can make you feel should be trusted for that reason alone. That I was in on the secret. That I was above all this. A wanderer above a sea of clouds. A vanguard of sanity above a culture gone mad. I paid for my hubris. I finished my sixth can of soda. And placed it on the can before it. Sitting atop the can before it sitting next to the cans before it. An illuminized facsimile of the Twin Towers and the Emerald Heraldry of Mountain Dew, suddenly as frail and impermanent as the real thing, stood before me. A miniature tragedy within the walls of my man-child stench cave sanctuary made by my own two hands. The same two hands that tap the keyboard, the same two hands that threaten to unfurl limitless agency now rendered monstrous. I remembered the moral, but I didn't know what it meant. Because when the monster is all in your head that's saying two things, that there is in fact a monster, and that that monster is inside of you. It's not in the world, it's not under the bed, or in the closet, or at the state house, or in the courtroom, or on 4chan, or Facebook, or Tumblr, it's in you, it's in me. And that monster is simply the suggestion that we can run away from having a genuine aesthetic sense, as the hipsters do, or that we can hide behind a mask to, as do the trolls, cover the hole in our heads where there's supposed to be a face. So I went for the third option. Being a hater. Saying yes to having an opinion. Saying yes to acknowledging that, like it or not, we judge and are judged. Saying yes to fighting monsters and being a monster. Because unless we do, we believe that things are as the internet tells it every September 11th on 4chan. We'd believe that all the really important things are all in our heads. Mike on a Bike Rauscher is, like your host, an Oberlin College alum from the class of 2011. Right now, he is lying low in Cleveland with delusions of being a popular scholar of the internet. 
our next story this hour from Sean Hansen. There were no monsters under my bed. There were no monsters in my closet, though sometimes at night I imagined there was a vampire suspended upside down by his toes from the same rack that by day concealed my Sunday school bests. What these crawl spaces did offer, though, was a temporary refuge when I was afraid. While other children feared some otherworldly being would reach out from under their mattress at night, I knew it was a small space, one that my quasi-emaciated double-jointed body could climb under, and by warping my arms, my legs, my spine, I could become part of the bed springs. This was no place, though, for solace. This was a place for me to be fearful and hope I was safe. Everyone checked under the bed in hide-and-go-seek. It was useless, and I couldn't quickly emerge. I couldn't unfurl my limbs when I was under there. And my closet offered no Narnia. The first time I hid in my bed, though, was when I realized, to my horror, that my father could imitate the voice of Disney's Maleficent flawlessly. As an adult, when I hear her icy, Well! I almost think of my father's untapped potential as a Disney villain drag queen. But as a child, I very honestly believed that my father was being temporarily possessed, with the intent to find me, choke me, dismember me, burn me in ethereal green flames. The worst result for both of us was a rough hug and my father's eye ache from staring never blinking into the depths of my being. But five-year-old Sean never stopped fearing for his life or his soul. These episodes would come at random when I least expected them. My father would be mid-phrase in a ragtime tune on the piano, me somersaulting on the floor nearby in time, when suddenly the music would cease, and my father's head would turn to stare at me. Well, terror. Abject terror in that way that adults never realize and are never able to distinguish. I'd pull myself up and run up the stairs as fast as I could, recognizing my father was barely moving, inching his steps slowly toward me. I couldn't resist. I doubled back, peeked, calm again, and intrigued. Nope! Nope! Not okay! Look at those eyes! Run! I'd run a few more steps, stop, turn around, look. Slow but terrifying. What are you doing? Do you want to live to be six or not? Fool! My bed at the time was not lofted, so I ran into my father's room instead, with enough space underneath that there was a little step stool nearby to let me climb into bed with my parents when I had a nightmare or when I just wanted pancakes at 6am. I would toss it aside and crawl to the back, a triangle crawl space that my parents were much too large to reach, and I would wait. As I steeled myself, I would crawl back and peek out, where sometimes I would nearly pee myself when looking up, ah! I would be face to face with my father. Well and sometimes I would collapse in relief as his eyes went back to normal and I saw his loving adoration again. I would cling to his leg and tell him it had happened, it happened again, and that I was so glad he was back and he would act like he had no idea what was going on, but his smile and his wink would give himself away. I returned to the closet and under the bed as a young adult. There were many things to be afraid of in my family. In retrospect, I'm immensely fortunate to come from a family where physical abuse was not a possibility. I've heard harrowing stories from some of my deepest friends, some Oberlin alumni, some about flashing a violence that ruined their lives and the lives of their siblings. 
My parents did not do this. They were in, however, a marriage out of necessity. At some point after my younger brother was born, it became very clear that my parents were not meant to be together. They became inept at communicating together whenever a topic would involve their opinions or their egos or any conflict. As a sixth grade student enrolled in a series of peer mediation seminars, it became startlingly clear that no technique would get them to speak rationally to one another. If I pulled them apart and caucused with them, and let me pause here for a moment of levity to admit, yeah, I used the phrase separate and caucus regularly in middle school, and yes, I was the target of a lot of harassment, not of all of which was completely unwarranted. Regardless, if I pulled them apart and caucused with them, they had a tendency to redirect their frustration and anger at me. I, on the other hand, was not to show emotion. A good southern man does not cry around his friends or family, but does so, if at all, discreetly, does not speak of it, nor of his emotional anguish. So at some point in high school, these two roles, soundboard for broken marriage and stolid straight man who would become the breadwinner for his future grandchildren, collided. I returned to my bed. Unable to fit under the bed more than halfway now, I turned instead to the closet and carefully checked it for sleeping vampires. Then I stepped in, kneeled on the piles of sleeping bags, closed the door, and wept. This wasn't the first space. At first, I cried openly and inevitably took the brunt force of being told to stop repeatedly, that it was not helping, that it was all within my control. This never helped. Sometimes I hid under the stairs in the basement where my screams into my balled up hoodie would be muffled. Other days I took my dog out on a walk through the forest that bordered the land across the road where I'd find solitude and would let loose not barbaric yaps, but queer, fragile ones. But the cold set in in the fall and I was often seen pacing in the basement when my father came down to do laundry. Other days I was grounded, unable to leave. The pile of blankets in the dark became my solace only for extreme days, when I could muster the energy to leave pillow forts built for protection, but could not bear to leave my room. It ended, though, abruptly. I don't know what triggered that particular episode. Part was undoubtedly my father's anger over what would someday become a divorce, manifesting itself in inane demands of his children instead. Another part was knowing inside that I had been raised my entire life to hide who I was, a gay, emotional man capable of transgression who made mistakes. At some point I realized I had lived much of my adolescence in a double life. This horrible waste of a human being that I was in this closet was richer and more fulfilling a life than the perfect Christian role model I embodied around company and adults. Then, weeping silently into the pile of sheets, pillows, and blankets, my father opened the door and saw me trembling in the fetal position on the floor, a nearly grown 16-year-old man. I yelled at him to leave me alone, to go away, that I needed space. He yelled louder and shamed me. I forgot what happened next, how I managed to break out from the closet and past my father's grasp, how I found myself walking for half a mile into a park adjacent to the trails I ran along with my dog, how I sat in the dark on the curb, calling my friend Jacqueline and this straight man named Andy, one year my senior, 
who I wanted nothing more than to be. Andy was rebellious in the eyes of my parents, but independent in the eyes of myself. And the first male body that I came close to that made me tingle with sexual desire and lust. Desire and lust I swallowed silently when we changed for band competitions or sat around when he smoked, talking about bodily fluids found on his girlfriend's living room curtains and how they came to arrive there. I bawled until Jacqueline's beat-up car celebrate diversity bumper sticker peeling off the back. A welcome sight in a conservative Kentucky town pulled up a alongside me. There was at least one hug. We ate waffles at a rundown waffle house about 10 miles away. Twilight having become full darkness, my confidants instilling in me the knowledge that I would someday be independent, gone, and my parents would be sorry for missing the adult me, and I would blossom into a powerful being capable of greater empathy than the quiet, polite gentleman that had been my role model. Then they dropped me off a while from my home, as they'd been banned from seeing me some months earlier, and I walked home to my punishment, and worse, the steely silence that would wedge itself between myself and my family for the rest of time. My father and I eventually grew closer, warmer, though there are things that I still do not discuss with him. My mother and I grew further apart, physically when she moved to New Zealand after leaving our family, emotionally when she and I stopped regularly speaking. That space is still there, and I don't think it will ever die. But though I don't speak to them any longer, nor have any idea who they may have become, Andy and Jacqueline were right. I am the man they described to me that night. I am the boy who overcame his monsters by running away from them until one night when he grew up. That story was from Sean Hansen. Sean, Oberlin class of 2011, lives in Brooklyn, New York. You're listening to The Second Page on WOBC 91.5 FM, Oberlin College and Community Radio. This brings us to the second part of our hour, stories about coming home. Our first story this hour, from Hillary Carter. In September, I moved out of my parents' house in Winchester, Massachusetts, to Columbia, Missouri. My boyfriend, Rich, was starting grad school, and when I was able to get an AmeriCorps position with the Columbia Parks Department, I decided to move there with him. I had never been to Missouri before. I drove there with all my stuff. I took four days to do it going from Winchester to the house of my friends in Ithaca, New York, from Ithaca to Oberlin, where I said to Harris over Long Islands at the Fev, I don't know where I'm sleeping tonight. I was kind of hoping on your floor. And then from Oberlin to Terre Haute, Indiana, where I gave up on driving straight through and got a hotel room. And then from Terre Haute to Columbia, I pulled off of I-70 and Pretty soon I was in front of this salmon-colored house that I was going to live in for the next three years. I brought a fair amount of stuff with me, but the biggest piece I had of my old home was the car, a 1998 Mercury Grand Marquis that used to belong to my dad. A long time ago, it was like a nice car. By then, it was beat up and had poor gas mileage compared to newer vehicles. 
but I'd been through so much of this car, including many of the stories I've told on this program. I'd learned to drive on it. Uh, I didn't get to bring it to Overland, but I drove it regularly at home and during my summers. I drove through 12 states in it. I'd cried in it, been in love in it, slept in it, and picked up a hitchhiker that fortunately didn't murder me in it. I crashed into my neighbor's azalea bush in it one time when it started rolling down the hill I live on. I think what had happened there was that I maybe accidentally shifted into reverse without starting the car first. Something you really shouldn't be able to do, actually. The Grand Marquis was a tank. That's what my sister called it, the tank. My first week in Missouri, I fit five people besides myself and all their luggage for a week in it for a five-hour road trip. It's identical in many ways to the Ford Crown Victoria, which is the car that cop cars are. So you have the added bonus of freaking out everyone on the highway at night when they can't see that the car is baby blue. Oh yeah, it was this horrible baby blue color, too. It's hard to beat a free car, and I was planning to hold on to it as long as I could. But as it aged, I knew its day would come. I knew someday something would work funny when I drove, or the car wouldn't start one day, or the check engine light would come on again, and I'd take it to a mechanic, and they'd tell me a price, and it would be too much this time. And I would cut my losses and say goodbye. Except it didn't happen that way at all. One Saturday morning, I was driving to the Columbia Farmer's Market with Rich when I smelled something weird. Do you smell that? I said to Rich. Yeah, it smells like roasted marshmallows, he said. Weird. Maybe someone's having a barbecue. We went to the farmer's market and came back without incident. Early that evening, I drove to the play I was acting in at the time, at a venue only about two miles from my house, and I smelled the smell again. I happened to look down and saw a small flame coming out of my cigarette lighter and beginning to consume a pencil sitting in my cup holder. I immediately pulled over, turned on my flashers, and got out of the car. I didn't even think to grab my purse as I left. I called Rich, and he said he would come with some towels to try to put out the flames. I looked at the houses around me. Should I knock on someone's door and ask if they had a fire extinguisher? The flames still seemed pretty small, and in my panic, I was legitimately worried that the fire department would be mad if I called them about such a small fire, and that the people living nearby would be mad if I knocked on their doors and asked for a fire extinguisher. As I paced around the different houses, the flame began to spread. Rich hadn't showed up yet, so I knew I had to call 911. Something I'd never done before. I'd only ever called the police non-emergency number. Fortunately, the church across the street had an address on it, so I could tell them exactly where I was. A girl came out of one of the nearby houses to ask if I needed help. I couldn't stop sobbing as I explained what was going on. She happened to be a volunteer firefighter, and she told me I needed to get away from the car in case the bumpers flew off as it heated up. This made me even more upset, and I lamented that I had left all my stuff in it, including my driver's license and my work ID. 
All these things could be replaced, she reminded me. Rich arrived with the towels, but it was too late to contain the fire. The fire truck showed up soon after that. The firefighters were able to save all the stuff I could remember to ask them to find. And I conveniently remembered all of my work stuff and none of the several pairs of shoes I had sitting in the back seat. They were still in the car when it got hosed down. As the woman standing by me reminded me how lucky I was to be safe, I felt so stupid for crying over a car. It ended up being totaled, of course, and I got some insurance money out of it, which was more than I would have gotten if it had just broken down one day and I had to junk it. But I broke down again when I went to the shop it had been towed to in a few days to remove the last of my stuff from it. The dashboard had melted. The seats were charred. The windows were brown. A few pairs of my shoes floated in the floor of the back seat. A car is sort of this little environment that goes with you no matter what weird places you may drive it to. It's one constant in the changing landscape around you. Additionally, having a car frees you to go where you want, when you want. It's as simple as that. I didn't want to leave it there at the shop to be thrown into a junkyard, even though it was completely unusable now. If I were some crazy rich person, I would probably have kept it in the museum of my life in my mansion. But I'm not, so I just cried some more and salvaged a road atlas from the trunk and left. So now I have some idea of how I will feel if my parents move out of the house I grew up in. I like doing new things and seeing new places. That's why I loved having my own car. But I guess I need something within reach that I know inside out. Something to come home to. I have a hard time letting go of these things because I guess I have this need to be able to go back to where I came from. Hillary Carter, Oberlin College class of 2009 and former writer for the Dead Here Footsteps and Semi-Automatic Players, now resides in Columbia, Missouri. Our next story this hour is from someone who was responsible for so many years of my life for providing me with a home. From my mother, Helen Chu Hirschberg. I was coming home to a place I had never been, Gongdong. Sunway, Samgong, in that order, the names rang in my ear and rolled easily off the tip of my tongue, for my father had drummed them into me from the time I was small. You have to know where you come from, he said, and so it was that I traveled to a place that was my home and yet was not my home. It was not only because my father had fingered this place to be my Ga Hyung or home village, Although I actually knew little about it, having never been there, sights and sounds echoed in my head, mostly through the nostalgia of my grandparents. As Grandpa sang of the Yellow River, I sensed its power and magnificence. Grandma would mimic the jingle of the wonton peddler as he ambled down the street, his voice jauntily piercing the busy morning. My grandparents both smoke of the mouth-watering lychees, 
much superior to all poor substitutes. Above the buffet in the dining room was a large photo of my great-grandmother, my Abak. Stern face with fiery black eyes, a bit sad, I thought, hair tied back with a net, the mouth tightly set, one that had known determination and sorrow. She was the center of the altar. She had been there like forever. When I was small, she looked unsmiling and scary. Now, I met her sad eyes and read the tired lines of her face. In front of her was laid the ceremonial roast chicken, oranges, some rice wine, and some wafting incense. Grandmother's ancestor chicken was smoky and pungent, delicious. With two fingers, I would slip under the crispy skin and slip out just a tiny morsel of flesh. Mmm. I hope no one would notice or mind. In addition was a personal chain of connections, forged through people, projects, ideas, and pictures traversing the wide Pacific Ocean. My Hong Kong cousin, my father's niece, had pressed a photo into my hand. It was a sepia tone, a small square picture, the kind with scalloped white edges, typical of the 1950s. It was just a bit faded and dog-eared, a small child in a stroller, hair squarely cut just below the ears with fringe bangs in the Chinese style stared out of it. I want you to have this, she said. Your mother sent this to me when her first daughter was born. It's your eldest sister. It was the best time to visit China. Decades after the bloody revolution, the bitterness had been mitigated by the passage of time. Ours had been a landowning family. In the eyes of the revolutionaries, that in itself had been a crime. But now China was in a state of flux and change, and maybe capitalism wasn't so bad after all. Politics had softened on both sides. China now saw a benefit in welcoming back its wayward sons and daughters, as well as their descendants. We welcome you, Wakyu, on uh, your return to China, they said to me. My cousins, whom I had freshly met, took my hand to walk me along in a sisterly way. I was eager to see the village, the place of my origin. This was of great interest. It was a time warp, a place out in the vast countryside where oxen were standard labor. Water came from the stone well located in the center of the small village. There couldn't have been more than 20 stone houses there. They pointed out the street joining the neighboring village of Gunqin, where my mother had paraded in a palanquin to marry my father. I was taken to my Abak's house, where I was shown the dark wooden bed on which my father had been born. I turned my gaze to the altar, and much to my surprise, I saw familiar photos, for I had personally printed them in my college darkroom. There were photos of Abak as well as the various other China relatives. So that was what my father had wanted them for. On a prior trip, my father had built a lovely gazebo some distance outside of the village to honor her, also enhanced with a copy of the same print. A street under construction there would bear my grandfather's name. It would be Jin Mei Lo. A school also under construction displayed a sign above the doorway which said, 
Yan Wu Lei. May mankind live in peace. Dad had cleverly disguised his rebuke to the villagers for Abak's death in the revolution. I have to say this part was especially poignant for me. I had always been aware that the day of my birth coincided with the death of Abak. My cousins had said, ah, yes, they did remember mention of a girl being born at that time. In all, I was amazed that I had made a difference to these people whom I had never met, who lived half a world away. I, a Chinese American who spoke perfect English and maybe passable Chinese. I had never felt myself so Chinese as then, when I heard the stories of Abak, who overcame hardship to rise to the level of village leader, who had sent supplies to troops in the mountains in the Sino-Japanese War. I was touched. I was supremely proud of her in the way that one can only be proud of kin. As I absorbed the influence of myself and my family in this small village, I felt a great sense of belonging. But yet, it wasn't quite my home. As a Chinese born in America, I had always straddled two worlds. At home, I was too Americanized. Outside, I was conspicuously Chinese. The relatives smiled tolerantly as I boiled hot water for my bath, something they never did for themselves. My aunt relinquished her bed for us, opting to sleep on the hard bench in the living room with a tea box under her head. They let the American use precious electricity for the fan at night even while asleep. As we left the embrace of the family for further travel, I increasingly felt myself to be a stranger in a strange land. Expectations in China were very different from what I was accustomed to. In the restaurants, why didn't the servers come right away if they weren't busy? And when they came to clean the hotel bathroom, there was no soap or bleach to be seen. And the summer was so hot, but there were no ice cold drinks and popsicles to be found. Every time I needed to buy something, I could be charged several times the correct price unless I haggled. When we were charged more than the menu price for our meal, they answered that that was because they had given us a bigger fish. Sometimes it was comical. Once we had ordered a whole roast chicken. When it arrived, two legs were missing. Perplexed, we sent it back, expecting another. Instead, the same chicken returned, this time accompanied by the two detached legs. No way, that just doesn't happen in America. The air in the cities was full of bituminous coal dust from industry as well as daily cooking. I couldn't breathe. For this, I quickly learned the native's way of brewing tea from the dry, dark, egg-shaped fruit, the Lohan Goa. It was sold on every street corner. So, I suppose I could have managed if I had to, except, maybe worst of all, where was the coffee? And I'm sure I confused the natives as well. Most likely they had no idea why what was good enough for them wasn't good enough for me. Who was I to be so demanding? Haggling was a matter of course. My mother had never lost a habit. When we lived in New York, Mom discovered Delancey Street, a short walk from Chinatown. 
It was a colorful Jewish shopping area, not unlike Mong Kok in Hong Kong, except the people were Jewish, of course. But there, she haggled left and right. You make cheap, was her oft-repeated phrase. Although I anticipated these things after a while, I can't say that I ever really got comfortable with them. By the end of the trip, I knew then that I could never live in China. I was too American. I couldn't wait to get home. That story was from my mother, Helen Chu Hirschberg, who is currently moving homes from Fremont, California to Lafayette, California. You're listening to The Second Page on WOBC 91.5 FM, Overland College and Community Radio. Our next story is from Emma Anderson. My junior year in college, I went to Stockholm, Sweden on a study abroad program. I chose the program because I wanted to learn a new language, and I wanted to get closer to my Swedish ancestry. Before I left, I took out the only Swedish audio materials I could find at the college library, a cassette tape from the 60s and accompanying workbook. I practiced religiously in my dorm room and learned to say, Hello, how are you? Can you tell me the way to the train station? In the days before my plane took off, I was constantly anxious. The what-ifs circled around in my brain ceaselessly, and I started to feel like moving to Sweden for four months was like a test I hadn't studied for in a class I was barely passing. I flew to Stockholm on a half-empty plane with a whole row of seats to myself. The stewardesses walked back and forth, offering dinner, water, snacks, chocolate. I thought, I can do this. This isn't so bad. When the plane landed, I was met by someone from my program who handed me an envelope full of pocket money and a cell phone and put me in a taxi which would take me to my new apartment, off in a northern suburb that I couldn't yet pronounce. I looked at the trees lining the highway and was placated by the thought that we were driving on the side of the road I was used to, and the fact that really, the highway didn't look all that different from the one I drove on back in the States. If I just ignored the road signs with the funny vowels, I could be at home. On my first night in Stockholm, my new roommate and I went out to find the subway station so we could go into the city for dinner. Our program had given us a map with directions to the station entrance from our apartment, but after wandering around for 20 minutes, we still couldn't find it. We should ask somebody for directions, said, I said to my roommate. I don't know, she said. No, I actually know how to ask the way to the station in Swedish, I exclaimed, thinking of the one phrase I had studied. It'll be great! Just then, a man with a three-year-old girl on his shoulders crossed the street towards us. He looks nice, I said. I'm going to go for it. I went up to the man, summoned my courage, and said in my best Swedish, Hello, how are you? Can you tell me the way to the train station? He looked down at me with an expression that made me wonder if I had made a colossal mistake and had been learning Norwegian this whole time instead. It's that way, he said in perfect English, pointing down the hill. Oh, thanks, I said, dejected. It was my first Stockholm rejection. People would ask me where in the city I lived, and I would say, Soon be Burke, in my hopelessly American accent. What? they would say, and I would try again and again, stressing different syllables and rounding my vowels. Soon be bad. Soon be Burke. Soon be baddie. Until they said, 
Isn't that what I said? I would think. My Swedish teacher told me to practice saying the name like the subway announcer did. When I rode the subway home after class, I listened to the woman's recorded voice on the intercom and tried to repeat her exact inflection. Nesta te centralen. Nesta östermomstor. Nesta sumbibet. The train announcer became an object of worship to me. I sometimes refused to talk to my friends when we rode the subway together, just so I could practice whispering the names of strange places under my breath. Oddly enough, my uphill battle with mastering Swedish language and social customs didn't make me homesick, as it did for the other American students on my program. It just made me want to try harder. I went to every social gathering and family dinner that I was even indirectly invited to. I spent lots of time in the supermarket, noticing what other people were buying and choosing the same things for myself. I read the subway tabloids, or as much of them as I could understand, and kept up with Swedish television and celebrities. Other students, and even other Swedes, would ask me why I was trying so hard. I didn't know. It just felt important, somehow. As the weeks and months passed, the names and places became next less strange, and my accent improved, too. I became friends with a group of people who taught me to play Scandinavian music and let me muddle through conversations in my limited Swedish. I made my life busy and enjoyed spending time with all the new people I had met. But there was just one teensy detail I had left out of all my conversations. The fact that I was just on a temporary student visa and that I would be leaving in December. I honestly didn't think anyone would notice. Most of my Swedish friends seemed fairly indifferent to my presence, even after months of me hanging around. But when the date of my departure got closer and I casually mentioned that in a couple of weeks I would be going back to the States for good, their reactions dumbfounded me. What? they exclaimed. You can't go back! You're so great! After the initial shock, some people would say, It must be nice to be going home. That's not what it feels like, I kept thinking. People would ask me what I liked so much about Sweden, and it felt impossible to explain. I tried talking about looking at fields out of the windows of a train, and the culture of trust in one another, but none of that really explained how I was feeling. On my very last night in Stockholm, late at night at a Santa Lucia party, the, fellow, the festival celebrating the return of light on the darkest night of the year, I told a friend that it was just something I felt in my heart, that Sweden was my home. Then you'll come back, she said. Yes, I said. I will come back. A year and a half later, just after I graduated from college, I made good on my promise and planned a trip back to Sweden. That July, I went to the Boston airport to get on a transatlantic flight to Stockholm. My flight was a little delayed, but no problem. There was still plenty of time to make my connection to Newark. I waited and waited and eventually noticed that almost all of the travelers in the terminal were staring at the TV screen. It turned out that a pilot had just died in flight, en route from Germany to Newark, and camera crews were swarming all of the terminals. There was no way my flight would be leaving anytime soon, let alone in time to make my connection. I ended up waiting in the Boston airport for 12 hours for a flight that would eventually take me to Paris, and then on to Stockholm. The flight finally landed in the late afternoon, and the sun was still high in the sky. I took the high-speed train from the airport and watched out the window as the fields turned to warehouses and cityscapes. It felt familiar, but my pulse quickened. What if I couldn't remember enough Swedish? 
What if none of my friends remembered me? What if my na massively delayed flight had been the universe telling me that this was the wrong thing to do? The train pulled into the central station, and I got off. I bought a transit pass and waited for the subway that would take me to my friend's apartment. The subway train pulled up to the station and I boarded. A familiar voice came over the intercom. Nesta, Ustamom's toy. My whole body relaxed. I knew I was home. Emma Anderson is an Oberlin alum from the class of 2009. She lives in Seattle and spends her time teaching kids about math, computers, and research skills. Our next story this hour is from Brandy Farabee. I've always been interested in the difference between what are facts and what are truths. In rural Virginia, where I was raised and where I have returned, facts have mattered far less than truth. Take Billy, a family friend with dementia. What actually happened has never mattered much to her. What she feels is the truth wins out despite the facts. This is especially true nowadays, as she forgets proper nouns, many verbs, and the names of any animals. As gentrification creeps into our area, so too does the valuing of fact over truth. In my own family, I am at a unique intersection. I have the critical mind of a liberal arts college graduate with the faith in truth of a Virginia girl. When my family tells the occasional story, I ask, when was that? How did you feel? What happened after the dust settled? Many of these questions may never be answered. Daddy's childhood was spent in rural poverty that his parents' and grandparents' bootstraps did not save him from, and his embarrassment makes him slow to talk about it and quick to change the subject. Mama will not discuss with me the assumably wild years of her youth between age 16 and 28. My maternal grandparents' stories are of church, farms, and troublesome immigrants. My paternal grandparents' stories seem to have died along with them before I could talk. Except sometimes, when things slip out. I have long known that my paternal grandmother, Iris, died within the year after my father graduated. She was diagnosed with uterine cancer the week before my father was to be the first in his family to graduate high school, and Iris insisted that he walk, even though he didn't want to. She left behind three barely adult children, my father, and his younger sister Lynn, who was only 12. Of course, Floyd also survived her. I call my father's father Floyd, because that's what Daddy has always called him. Floyd, or my dad. Never a nickname, only facts. My father's truth about Floyd has always been a grim one. Here's what I know of Floyd. He smoked until the cigarettes killed him with lung cancer when I was two. He was a truck driver. He gave Iris enough money from his check for groceries and then took the rest of the horse racetrack over the West Virginia state line. He could not fix things. My father's innate mechanical talents were focused and trained by his carpenter grandfather and a clock repairman slash carpenter slash tinker family friend. In fact, in a winter soon after Iris died, Floyd didn't bother to keep the fire going enough to keep the pipes from freezing. Plumbing had only just been added to the house to ease Iris's slow death at home. Daddy came back to the house from his bachelor apartment, fixed the pipes, and took Lynn to live with him where he raised her, signed her report cards, and made sure that she graduated high school without becoming pregnant, avoiding the fate of most of the women my father grew up around and was raised by. 
This is an awfully damning list of facts. I have long suspected that Daddy's truth could not be the whole truth. After all, what human man could be so terrible without reason? My mentor, incidentally the daughter of Billy of her own truth, and Daddy's now long-dead tinker mentor, has told me that Floyd never had a mean word to say about anyone, and slipped me the factoid about how Floyd always made sure to leave enough money for groceries. But really, is that enough to make a human out of a father my own father couldn't even recount a fond memory of? Finding my own, fair, truth of Floyd only got harder this Christmas. Daddy had only the day before soberingly reminded us that our current Christmas gift-giving, influenced by my paternal family, was alien to the gifts of his youth. They would each get a new pair of shoes each Christmas, and maybe one toy. As I watched Mama and her two sisters pick apart the Christmas turkey, she and I joked about other middle names she could have had within the tradition, that the sisters all had middle names beginning with the letter L. Leanne? Lisa? Lauren? Lorraine? We giggled. Then she said a name I had never heard of. Who have you ever known with that name? I playfully demanded. Your grandfather's mistress, she exclaimed before realizing her mistake and telling me. My eyes shot to her father, but then it dawned on me. Floyd had a mistress? I asked her. It's your father's to tell. I turned to him, sitting frozen on the love seat at the other end of the great room. He nodded. Lips pursed in annoyance, embarrassment, and still fresh anger at his father. Before she died? After? Daddy simply said, yes. How can I reconcile the facts of Floyd with any humanity? After all, Iris died of a cancer brought on by HPV, no doubt given to her by Floyd. Whether or not that HPV came to him by that mistress, to love another woman while his wife lay dying a painful and heart-wrenching death, a death which ultimately drove her own strong-willed mother to insanity and an early death in a state asylum, a death that left a 12-year-old girl orphaned for all practical purposes, a death that broke my daddy's heart and to this day is one of the only things that is bound to make him cry. What greater betrayal is there? These truths make the facts of my life all the more black and white. My father's ambition for me was that I, too, would graduate high school without getting pregnant. More than that, under my parents' unintentional influence, I have graduated Oberlin and have so far been lucky enough to avoid any abusive relationships, sexual assault, or unwanted marriages or pregnancies. The fact is, my father's truth has created my facts. Fact is, in a few weeks, I will get my second of three shots meant to inoculate me against the major strains of HPV. This is the only request Daddy has ever explicitly made in regards to my sexual health. He only had to ask once, since we both know the truth of how careless people can be with one another, human or inhuman. Brandy Farabee is a 2010 graduate of Oberlin College. She's living the adventure of returning home to Shenandoah Valley, where she learns the old ways and sneaks off to the city to swing dance and discuss social justice. You're listening to The Second Page on WOBC 91.5 FM, Oberlin College and Community Radio. Our final story this hour, from Edward Underhill. 
The Winnishik Theater. I was never close with my grandfather. He was there every Christmas for as long as I can remember, like a shade haunting the old house filled with mid-century furniture, decorations that hadn't changed since the 70s, a reserved man who let my grandmother do all the talking, peering at us from behind thick glasses that made his eyes look large and owlish. It's a warm, sunny day in August when I go back to a tiny town in Illinois for his memorial service. It's one of those towns that takes up more space than you'd think it would, because so much of it is farms. Field after field, and then suddenly there's a town. Some of the storefronts have changed. There's a subway, and some big chain pharmacies. But the church is just the same. I remember it from all the pictures of my mom and dad's wedding, back a long time ago before they got divorced. There's still the same old carousel in the park that I remember riding as a kid, and was there long before I was. Inflation has gotten to it, of course. It charges 75 cents a ride now, instead of a quarter. After the church service, my dad and my brother and I drive just a few blocks down. Do you remember being here? My dad asks. There's a visitation at the Winnishik Theater. It's actually the oldest continuous amateur theater in the country. It's been going since 1873. It doesn't look like all that much from the outside. A gray wood building, sitting right in the middle of a residential street between old houses in need of paint jobs. I have to admit I don't remember it. Not really. Inside, there are people. My family, my dad's sisters, his brother, my cousins, and people I don't know, mostly older, friends from church or from the theater. My grandmother wanders among them, a lost smile on her face. She doesn't remember much these days, but my dad told me that when it came time to make the decision, his sisters asked her what she wanted to do, and she said quietly, he's been through enough. There's food and pictures. My aunt has collected pictures, newspaper clippings, even my grandfather's old theater meeting notes. I open one of the fat binders sitting on the piano in the corner of the lobby. There's a newspaper clipping with a big picture. It's a square dance in Wisconsin, and right in the middle of the picture, wearing those big glasses, is my grandfather. He must be in his 20s, and he's smiling, a big old dopey grin as he dances. I suddenly realize he's probably my age in this picture. My aunt walks by. Did you know Grandpa met Grandma at a square dance? She says. No, I didn't. I flip through the pictures and find the old typed-up theater meeting notes. The minutes, motions to do this, to do that, announcements, reminders. My grandfather is in all of them. The dates are from the 1950s, the 1960s, the 1970s. Here are my grandfather's theater newsletters, decade after decade. Fundraising, bake sales, renovation updates, snarky reminders that it was rude to buy tickets and notch up to use them. My dad comes up behind me. Come here, I want to show you some things. He leads me over to a colorful wall in the lobby, right next to the entrance to the theater. It's a brick wall, and almost all the bricks have been painted. My dad explains it's a tradition. You pay a little money to the theater, and you get to paint a brick. Most of the bricks have names on them. Actors and directors from previous productions. Here's a blue one with my dad's name on it. Winthrop, the music man, 1969. My aunt's name's on another, The Emperor's New Clothes, 1973. There's one for my grandmother, who was in a production of Oklahoma, and one for my grandfather after he directed a show. My eyes drift. There's another brick with his name on it, and his title as president of the theater. There follows a year, which is crossed out, followed by the year after, which is also crossed out, followed by year after year after year. My dad takes me into the theater, which is only dimly lit but open. The props for the current production sit silent on the stage. We walk up on the stage, and my dad stares ruefully at the floor. Grandpa decided he wanted to refinish this floor once, he says. We were here until midnight. It is scuffed now, covered in colored tape. He looks up and points. There's the lighting booth. 
You used to get there by climbing a ladder. Grandpa rewired the whole thing so it actually worked. We leave the stage and wander through the theater, down the stairs into the basement, which is open now, filled with props. It used to be dressing rooms, my dad says. He shakes his head and points to various paper and cardboard signs along the way, faded but bearing a familiar blocky handwriting, notes and instructions my grandfather wrote, don't leave the lights on, watch your step, that have been hanging right here where he pinned them for decades. After my dad finishes showing me around, he goes back into the lobby, but I stay behind for a little while on the stage. I never really thought much of this place, this town in the middle of a bunch of cornfields. It was always just a place we went back to for Christmas, and sometimes for other holidays, though that happens less and less frequently now. It was the place I was somewhat embarrassed to admit connection to when I went off to the big city after college and made friends with people from big cities. Nobody knew where Illinois was, let alone this tiny town, even if it used to be a railway capital, even if Lincoln and Douglas debated here once, and one of my ancestors drove Lincoln to the debate. I think about my grandfather, who insisted on a prayer before Christmas dinner, who spoke slowly and methodically, who crossed out swear words in books. I think about him refinishing this floor. I think about him typing up clever newsletters. I think about the old house with its outdated decor, and how strange it was when my grandparents could no longer keep up that house and moved to an assisted living community. I think about how odd my grandfather looked in that polished, bland space, how out of place his mid-century furniture and antique cuckoo clock and old horse harness dotted with sleigh bells looked. I wonder why I never asked him about the trips he took to the Mississippi River, or the old cars he tinkered with, or where those sleigh bells had come from. I wonder if it was because he was a grandfather, and somehow, just like with parents, that precluded him from being a person, from being real. But now I begin to see this tiny town as a home, one that my grandfather kept coming back to, even as my dad scrambled to get away from it, just like I scrambled to get away from my parents after high school, to look for my own life. As I stand in this darkened theater, on this scuffed stage, head tilted back to look up at the lighting booth, I feel something. Something that is both familiar and doesn't quite belong to me. And for a brief moment, I imagine I can feel it all stretched out behind me. My dad singing and dancing on this stage as a little kid in The Music Man, back to my grandfather spending hours and hours in this theater, and then all the way back to a gangly young man who loves square dancing and met a young woman who also loves square dancing. I smile. They are people, all faults and virtues and enormous shortcomings. They are part of this town, with its ice cream socials and state fairs full of cows and quilts and tractor poles. I close my eyes and breathe in the soft, musty smell of the theater. It is familiar. It is not mine, but it is a home, and I have come back to it, with my glasses that make my eyes just a little owlish, and my love of contradancing, my unreserved passion in colorful language, and a shameless pursuit of a thoroughly unsensible profession. Later, we will take my grandmother back to her nursing home. Tomorrow, we will bury my grandfather's ashes on a hill overlooking a cornfield. But for now, I will stand in this old, dark theater for a few more minutes and just think. Edward Underhill is an Oberlin Conservatory alum from the class of 2009. He lives in New York City and writes music. That's it for this week's episode of The Second Page. Thanks to all of our storytellers, Mike, Sean, Hillary, Mom, Emma, Brandy, and Ed. Thanks to WOBC for putting us on the air. Thanks to you for listening. To listen to old episodes or submit stories of your own, visit our website, makesomethingeveryday.com slash second page. 
Once again, that's makesomethingeveryday.com slash second page. This is WOBC 91.5 FM, Overland College and Community Radio. I'm Harris Laproff, and I'll be back next week with stories of intergenerational relationships.